0: Where is God? You know, this is a question that many of us have asked ourselves uh, throughout our lives. I don't know if you're like me, but I'm sure you probably asked this question at one time or another where, where maybe life was going crazy and things were just um, not working out the way you thought that they would, or you're going through a difficult time. Maybe someone dies or you lost a job or you've lost something and you've looked around and you begun asking, begin asking yourself the question, where is God? Now, how you wrestle and the conclusions you come to when wrestling through the question, where is God, you will impact your eternity. They will impact your hope and they'll impact your thoughts and they'll impact the rest of your life where you come to answer the question, where is God? Some may come to the answer of saying, well, God is just not there. There is no God. And to those that come to that conclusion, there is no hope. If there is no God, then there is no hope. But if there is a God, then there is hope. And this God that cares for us. I want to tell you that there is a God that cares for you. There is a God that is out there. And there is a God that is actively involved in every aspect of your life. And that's what we're going to begin to look at over the next few weeks. We're going to look at trying to answer the question, where is God? Hopefully over the next few weeks, we'll begin to help you identify the hand of God in your own life, but also the hand of God in the world around us. And hopefully by the end of this series, you'll come to the place where you will be able to fully place your trust and faith in this God. And so we're going to walk through the book of Esther. Now, the book of Esther comes from the Old Testament. It's a part of the Bible. And we believe that the Bible is the revelation of God. This is the the book. These are the writings. These are the words that this loving God, this God that is there, has given to us. We believe that it is his revelation. And in his revelation, he's revealing two things. One, he's revealing himself. He's allowing us to see his true character for who he really is. So we get to see his attributes. We get to see his character. But also through the word of God, we get an opportunity to see his plans. We get to see his, his story. We get to see that unfold about how God has a plan and he has a purpose and how he's moving all things towards his direction and his end and his goal. So every time you open this word and every page from the beginning to the end is an uncovering or a revealing of God, who he is, and his plans. Yes. And so this morning, I want to make you aware of God's plans. You see, at the very, very beginning of this word, we see the book of Genesis. And we see that in the book of Genesis, God is a God that is creating. He is very simply just making things that are from things that weren't. So he's making things new. He's not putting things back together. He's making things out of nothing. And so from from the time of creation where God is creating, we see he is part of creation. He's made man. And part of man... He's made us to be able to choose whether or not to worship God or not. And part of that we chose not to in the fall. And so part of God's plan has been from the time of in the garden where we fell through now and through the end is God is in the business and in the plan of redeeming. He's in the process of bringing about redemption, where he's taking people that are fallen and he's trying to bring them back unto himself. And so we're in that time now where God is in the process of redeeming. But then there will come a time in God's plan where he will reign. For eternity, there'll come a moment where the lives of people will be judged. Every person will be judged for the good they did or the bad they did and whether or not they know the Lord or not. And then in the future, God will reign for eternity. So that is something we have an opportunity to look forward to. And so today we live in the portion of time that is in the plan of God redeeming and where we're looking forward to the time where God will reign. God is coming again and for we also know then God's plans, what he has done is he chose un- unfold His plan by showing his special love to a group of people called, called the Israelites. So God calls them unto himself, shows them special love, shows them special guidance. And then we also see that all of that pointed towards Christ. So God sent himself, his son, to earth to live a perfect life. And now God is continuing this plan of redemption through the church. And we wait for, for his coming again. What we need to be aware of this morning is that God is involved in all activities of the world. God is bringing about all activities to bring about and carry out his goals. And he's doing this all for his own glory. For what we see is this this book of Esther is a part of that plan. For we know prior to the book of Esther, what God has done is he called Israel unto himself. And he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And he encouraged them to obey and to just follow him and allow him him to show them special love. But God's people were unfaithful. The people of Israel were unfaithful and God in his love and his correctingness chose to allow God's people to fall into captivity to the Babylonians. God used the Babylonians to judge his people. And we see that that took place prior to Esther. And we also see that now in in the process of all of this, just prior to the book of Esther, God has allowed um, and brought about the Persians to judge the Babylonians. So in the process, he could restore Israel. And so at the beginning of the book of Esther, we see God's people are still in captivity. So that's God's plan. But we also need to see the, the hand of God. For in the book of Esther, it's different. It's different in the way that we see and identify the hand of God. For in the book of Esther, God's name is never mentioned. It doesn't, from from the beginning of chapter 1 to the end of this book, we see that God is not necessarily there in a very visible or, um, or in a real way that we can see in words. But that doesn't mean that God's hand is not involved. That's why sometimes in our life, and I think it's important, we look at the book of Esther. For at times in our lives, we we don't feel that God is there. We don't see God, his hand right before us. We don't see God in an amazing way. But even in those times where we don't see the hand of God, we need to trust that he is there. And that's why I think it's important for us to look at the book of Esther. But if we also look at the book of Esther and we look what comes before it and comes after it, we see God showing himself, revealing his hand in very different ways. If we go to the books right before the book of Esther, we see Ezra and Nehemiah. And what's really interesting about this is Ezra and Nehemiah actually in history come after the book of Esther. But in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we see the hand of God working in an amazing way. God is in the process of redeeming his people, calling them back out of captivity, bringing them back to his His city of Jerusalem. And what we see taking place is the hand of God, very active in the process of rebuilding his temple and building the city walls. So God is very, very active in those two books. We see him doing something amazing. And every single page, we see God very actively involved. But then... We go to the book right after the book of Esther, and we come to the book of Job. Now, in the book of Job, we see a very different side of the hand of God. For what is taking place, and this is really interesting too, is that Job actually comes before both Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah in history. So Job was written before all of those. So it's kind of weird. So it's not necessarily in chronological order. But what we see in the book of Job, the hand of God as it's working, What we see is the scene is what is taking place in heaven. How God is interceding and how God is interacting in in the heavenly realms over his people. For we see this, this conversation between God and Satan in the book of Job. And the conversation is about how how God is going to allow Satan to tempt Job, and how he's going to allow these bad things to happen to Job so that Job may show that he has been faithful and continues to be faithful to the Lord. So we see the hand of God in a very different way in those books. We also see in other places in the Old Testament that God's hand is very evident. There's times when God allows his people to see miracles, like the Red Sea gets parted so God's people get to walk through. That's a very visible hand of God. Um, And so very different ways we see throughout the, this book God's hand at work but in this book we see that it seems as though God's hand is not there but it is there let's begin this morning by jumping into the book of Esther as we're going to unfold the hand of God for the next few weeks read with me in chapter one verse one now in the days of Hazarus, the Hazarus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces? In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat down on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all the officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the providence were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all his people presents and in uh, Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches made of gold and silver. And on a mosaic pavement of pfafri marble mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehumam, Bista. Harbona, Bigtha, and Abigatha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command and delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, For this was the king's procedure toward all that were vested in law and judgment. The men next to him being Karshina, Sethar, Admethan, Tarshus, Merez, Marcina, Memucan, and the the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of the king Hazarus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memucan... Said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the province of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all the women, causing them to look at their own husbands with contempt. Since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media. Who have heard of this queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials. And there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him. And let it be written among the laws of the Persians and Medes. So that they may not be repealed. That Vashti is never again before the king Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all the kingdoms. For it is vast. All the women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes. And the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal providences, to every providence in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for loving us. And Father, thank you for not leaving us here um, all on our own to seek to try and figure all of this out. But Father, thank you that you have made yourself known to us. And Father, today as we walk through this revelation of yourself through the book of Esther, Father, may you come alive to us. May the spirit that is within us encourage us, strengthen us. But Father, may your spirit also bring us to the place of trusting you with our whole lives Speak, Father, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we, we begin today, what I want us to do is very quickly, as we begin to just uncover this book of Esther, the lesson that I want us to see today is that God is in and above world powers. We need to see that God's hand is in and above all world powers. As we pick up this account, what we see is Babylon... ...has recently been overthrown by Cyrus, which was Ahasuerus' father. And Ahasuerus is another name for Ahasuerus, is Xerxes. So um, Cyrus has overthrown Babylon, and now Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, is in control. He is the most powerful person on the planet, but he's not more powerful than God. And so what we see in this first chapter of the book of Esther... ...are two worldviews absolutely coming to to collide... Is the world, as we know it, either dominated by man or is it dominated by God? That's the question that is at stake here in chapter 1. Is it dominated by man or is it dominated by God? And as we begin this passage, we see Xerxes beginning to flex his power. And he's trying to show that he is the man. He's trying to show that he is in control. And the way that he does this is through partying and parading. Like if you want to show that you're the man, just have a really, really big party and people will come and then you parade everything that you have around. So through this partying and through this drinking and through all of this craziness that's going on in the beginning of chapter 1, there's some underlying things that are taking place. Xerxes is trying to show that he is over and above everything that has been made. He's even trying to show that he's even more powerful than God. For this is what is taking place. And those drinking from those golden vessels that it talks about. Well, those golden vessels were taken by the Babylonians when they sacked and they overthrew uh, the Israelite nation. Those vessels, those beautiful gold vessels were taken from Solomon's temple. And Solomon had given that temple unto the Lord. And so it's taken by the, the Babylonians. And now since the Persians have taken over the Babylonians, now that they are in the hands of Xerxes. And so Xerxes is very much making a stand by saying to himself, by drinking from these vessels, he is saying that this God, this God that was there, this God that was very prominent is no more. I am more powerful than he because I can drink from his goblets. And you have to imagine at this time, the Jewish people, those that love the Lord, what they must be thinking to themselves. Has God forsaken us? As they see these people that are not of the Lord, drinking from the Lord's goblets. Has God just left us here to die? Have we, has the love of God in our lives run out on us? Does God still care? And does not God still care because his name is being defamed? But let us not forget that even though that was the feeling, and the question is, where is God as it shows up in the lives of his people? Let us not forget the God of the Bible. As we see here, and as we'll see through the rest of this book, that God continues to unfold his character. One of the characteristics of God that I love so much is that we serve a God that is in control of all things. We see this through the understanding of the providence of God. God is a God that has given providential care to all that He has created. God is continually have, has unceasing activity as the Creator. He is act- actively involved in all things, He is continually upholding His creation. He's giving it order and he's showing his existence. He's guiding and he's governing all events. He's guiding and he's governing all circumstances. And he's guiding and he's governing all free acts of angels and of men. And God is completely directing everything to his appointed goal for his own glory. Now in the world today, we see that there are many different views of God and how he interacts with the world. I want to share some of those with you today, which are not of the God of the Bible. One of the views that God is out there is a pantheistic view of God. And this is the view that God is, or God, or God's, are continually absorbing all things into God. So eventually throughout time, a pantheistic view is that God takes in everything and everything becomes God and so everything will become God because there are a multitude of gods. That's a pantheistic view. There's a deistic view which is, there is this God, or this is creator, who has created all things, but then has cut himself off from everything. So he has no relationship, he has no love, he has no care, so he is created but left. And so there is this chasm between God and everything else. But then there's another view of God in the world today, which is known as dualism which in dualism there's a divided control between God and another power, where these two powers are in conflict with one another continually over and over and over again. Then there's another view that that God is um, an indeterminist view or an open theistic view of God which holds that there is this God who created all things, but is not in control of any of it. So it's all there, and and God is just waiting to see how we respond or waiting to see what we do and and all of that, so there's no control at all. But then there's the opposite view of that, the determinist view, which shows that God is in control of all things, that God is controlling and moving everything in such a way that there is no moral responsibility of man. Then there's another one. There's the doctrine of chance. And this is um, that, that God is not in control. But everything's happening just as random. And it's just coming out and somehow it'll get to its end. So there's this doctrine of chance. And then lastly there's a doctrine of fate, Which absolutely denies that this God is loving. That this God is caring. And this God is compassionate. But I want you to see that the God of the Bible, the God that I love, the God that has redeemed me, the God that has brought me through Christ, he's brought me back into a relationship with himself, is this God is king over all. And this God is doing just as he wills. He is completely exercising his providence over everything in the world and over all history. Now what's amazing about this, and this is something that I fully don't, completely understand but i know that it's true is that even though god is completely providential over all things he's exercising his providence over all things he does not release us of our own responsibility for our own choices god at the same time is completely in control of all things but he's also given us a will to choose and how those two things work together they do But God uses the free choice of man to bring about his plans. And we're going to uncover that more and more. So if that just boggled your mind a little bit today, that's okay. Come back in the next few weeks. We're going to continue to look at those two frames or two tracks as we walk through this. But as we look at this passage, as we see... Xerxes is beginning to flex his muscle. We have to understand that God is still in control. We can go to passages of scripture and we can see other places where God talks about his control over nations. His control over world powers. Proverbs chapter 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. So the king's heart is in the hands of God. We can also see that God sets up nations as he desires in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8. God sets up nations as he desires. We also know from Scripture that God is the one who judges all nations. And you can see that in Psalm 75, uh, verse 7. We see that God is also Lord over all. He's Lord over all nations in Daniel chapter 4, verse 32. God sets the boundaries of nations. We see that in Acts chapter 17, verse 26. We see that God is in control over all things, and we can see that in Romans 13, verse 1. So you can see that the Bible continually speaks of over and over and over again God's control over these nations of the world but we can also see God's providential hand in human history. For the Bible gives us illustrations of how God has been uniquely involved in all of human history. You remember the nation of Egypt that rose and was one of the greatest powers of all time? Well, God speaks of, um, of Egypt in Romans chapter 9, verse 17. He says this about Pharaoh. As Paul is writing, I have raised you up for the very purpose of showing my power in you so that my name be be, be proclaimed in all the earth. So why did the Lord allow Egypt to come to power? So that he could bring them low by showing his power. We also see that the Lord has allowed it. He prophesied about it, but he also brought it about in the rise of Babylon. For we can see that in Isaiah chapter 45, verses 1 through 5. We can see it in uh, Daniel and Jeremiah and Isaiah. For the Lord has spoken about Babylon and how it would rise and how he would use them to bring about judgment on Israel. That's in the Bible. That's also in our history books. God is the God of history. But then we also see the rise of the Persians, which is what we're looking at now. And we can see that that was not only prophesied about, but that it also came to pass. And God was in that. He was moving things about so that they would be accomplished. But what we also need to see is after the Persians, we know that the Greeks came. The Greeks came and they were the greatest nation of all time. And we see that they overthrew the Persians. And that also was prophesied about and told about in the book of Daniel. And then we can see when Jesus, before Jesus comes on the scene, that by the time when the Greeks fall, the Romans come to power. And we can see that was prophesied about in the book of Daniel. Over and over and over again. So we can see that this book comes on the heels of God being in great control and so as we see at the beginning of this passage though King Xerxes is is trying to flex his power over all things we know that the Lord is about to do something amazing even though Xerxes is trying to show that he is in control we see that God begins to flex his providence through the refusal of Vashti look at in verse 10 and through the end What's been taking place. Do you think God is just absent, and, and Queen Vashi just decides one day that she's just going to refuse to listen to the king? While the king is flexing his muscle, he finally comes to the place of where he is going to show his greatest accomplishment, his greatest trophy, in his queen. Do you think just that day where she decides, "Eh, I'm not going to do it, do you think that that just happened by chance? Or do you think that the Lord was working in Vashti's life in such a way to show one of two things. One, he was going to show that God is more powerful than this king. But then he was also going to bring about, continue to bring about this plan. He was going to use the refusal of Vashti to bring about a way to redeem. We're going to get there next week. But through this refusal, God is working through this queen. She just doesn't feel like coming to her husband on this day. God is going to show that he's more powerful than the king. For from verse 10 to the end of this chapter, we see this power struggle. She refuses. Then what does, what does Xerxes have to do? Well, Xerxes have to, has to go about and reclaim his power. For who can, who can bring about question to the king? If she's able to question the king, then that's going to throw over all of all humanity, for if the, queen can, or if the queen can overthrow the king, then what can, what can the wife do in the home to the husband? Isn't that going to mess everything up? Isn't that going to mess up the whole hierarchy of life in the world? Now what's amazing about this is that even in the worldly views, there's still threads of truth that are woven through all things, even though it may be messed up and confused. For we go back and we, we can see that God in his institution of life and a marriage and everything, we can see that he's always, always, always set the male to be a leader over the woman. Not in a way that's supposed to be domineering, but in a way that is a way that shows his headship, his lordship over us. And so we see that even in this Persian culture, they even though they, they had it all confused, they still were living in the truth of God. And so they knew that there was something there. So as it's being threatened, God steps in and he says, I'm going to do something great. So Vashti refuses. The seeking of wisdom comes. And King Xerxes says, do away with you. And God is going to open the door to bring about his plans to continue to redeem his people So today, where is God? Especially when we look at the world of world powers. I want you to know that God...